This podcast is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. Since 1873, the Naval Institute has provided an open forum for thoughtful discussion of the most important issues facing the sea services and national security. Become a member today. Go to www.usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Marketing and Outreach here at the Naval Institute. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Bill, welcome to Beach Hall. That is a ghost town because of these unprecedented times we're living in. Indeed. Yeah. So um, message to our listeners and our readers and our members is that the Naval Institute is open for business, and we very much are. Uh, my team, the periodicals team, we're, we're working on naval history right now. The next issue will be uh, going to the printers in about a week or so. Uh, we just pushed the April issue to the printers on Friday. And um, and now we are in a mostly work-from-home posture. So the, you know, the great thing about the Naval Institute, a lot of things are great about it, but um, from our IT perspective, uh, our team has invested heavily in laptops and uh, remote desktop and go to meeting and a number of different tools that allow uh, most of the uh, the people who work at the institute to do their job from home. And so uh, my team is having a, a nine o'clock uh, every morning go to meeting, which is just terrific. And editors are at home working on uh, the May issue of Proceedings Now. They're working on the uh, the next issue of, uh, of Naval History Magazine. We're working on Proceedings Online. Uh, and then we come in when we need to, which is, you know, pretty rarely. I haven't, this is the first time I've been in the office um, uh, this week. So it's good to see you in person, Ward. Good to see you too, Bill. Yeah. Um, but Although we're doing- you look fantastic yeah. on go to meeting. <laughs> and we are doing this social distancing we're wiping down all the uh, desktops close at hand clorox wipes with me we should reach out to clorox as a, as a sponsor for the <laughs> podcast right um but we're you know we're we're business is uh, we are open for business it's not business as usual but we are very much open for business and we're going to you know keep uh, cranking out episodes of the podcast cranking out proceedings in naval history the press is working on books downstairs our our uh, conferences and events team um, they are rapidly scram- scrambling to figure out whether we can have the annual meeting at the end of uh, April or if we postpone that or we do a webinar so some things in the uh, conferences and events are definitely on hold right now as as you'd imagine um, and another thing that continues is um, the c- construction of the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center. So that was nice to see the, you know, the trucks, uh, you know, the parade of dump trucks and uh, concrete mixers are here and uh, our big uh, brick and mortar, you know, investment in the Naval Institute continues. Uh, Whiting Turner's got their subcontractors here. And so all of that is, uh, is continued. They're staying six feet away from each other. Fortunately, you can build the conference center and remain six feet apart. That's right. So as you said, that should continue without hesitation and our goal is to sort of, as you're suggesting, make the Naval Institute presentation transparent to members and folks who consume our content. As you mentioned, the one thing that we're dealing with is the events portfolio, and we'll figure that one out. Um, as we sit here at the Naval Academy, it's uh, also a little bit of an unprecedented situation. 
Their spring break was extended by two weeks to begin with. They're just starting virtual classes as we speak. We don't know what the impact is going to be ultimately on commissioning week and beyond. And this is true for any NROTC student member, any university and college nationwide at this moment. It's a a strange time and uh, we'll cover it as it happens. So on that note, our guest today is uh, is very much uh, relevant to uh, the current situation. Definitely. So joining us from Hilton Head, South Carolina, is Dr. Jerry Mothershead, who, uh, with two other co-authors, Dr. Zygmunt Dembeck and Dr. Aigua Wu, uh, co-authored or tri-authored uh, an article that we published online last week called Protect the Force from the Novel Coronavirus. Dr. Mothershead, Jerry, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your background. You went to the Naval Academy. You were a a medical doctor in the Navy. Um, So just a little bit of your background and the background of your co-authors, and then we'll talk about what's going on with coronavirus. I was an A6 Naval flight officer for a few years, and then I uh, got picked up to go to medical school. Uh, The Navy was kind enough to give me a full scholarship, uh, so I graduated in 1980. After internship, I went back to flight training and became a flight surgeon. And because of my previous aviation experience, I got to do test flight at Pax River, Maryland. A couple of days of clinical work a week, a couple of days of test flight a week. And uh, that was a very fun time for me. Then, uh, then I did emergency medicine, uh, wound up in Desert Storm and Desert Shield, uh, supporting Navy SEALs. Finished out my career after that. I, I was back in clinical medicine, but I got more and more involved with uh, uh, CBRN. By the time 9-11 came along, um, people basically didn't want to listen to me too much before then, but after 9-11, I got phone, my phone was ringing off the hook by admirals and generals asking questions like how to protect their bases and things like that. Uh, retired in 2002, decided to stay in that avenue, and so I went to work for uh, Battelle Memorial Institute, which is a big defense contractor and a nonprofit. Uh, almost all my projects for my 14 or so years with them were involved with uh, pandemic influenza or uh, CBRN initiatives ranging from uh, bench research to applied applications. Retired from them a couple years ago and uh, still do some work. And currently I've got a contract with uh, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Uh, I'm part of their uh, deep reach back group, which is a fusion center uh, that answers questions and uh, RFIs for the various geographic commands, and et cetera. Dr. Dembeck and I actually go back well over 20 years. He's an epidemiologist. Uh, he, I met him when he was at U.S. AMRID, which is the U.S. Army Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, uh, and we have collaborated on projects. Uh, we both worked at the Center for Disaster and Humanitarian Assistance Medicine in the 2006-2010 timeframe, and we did... Uh, planning and assisting host nations uh, in uh, uh, beefing up their surveillance and response systems to uh, pandemic or other outbreaks. And hopefully they have used some of those in in the countries that we did that to help slow down the spread of this current uh, virus. Uh, Dr. Aigua Wu is a a PhD MD originally from China, uh, uh, but he is the medical head of the Defense Threat Reduction Reachback Group. So uh, that's our background. So CBRN means chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear. Is that correct? Correct. And so I've, I've had my toes in the water in the medical 
aspects of defensive response against those, you know, for, I'd say since 1980, 1996, 98 timeframe. I would say the preponderance of the work is in the bio area, but I've done some in the others. So, Jerry, you must have had some uh, part in the anthrax scare post 9-11 when uh, anthrax uh, envelopes were mailed to uh, congressional offices, et cetera, where you brought into that and, and provide... Um, Somewhat peripherally, what what happened is, and I'll, I'll keep that short. Uh, and I think it's better now. I mean, that was totally uncharted waters for virtually everybody, as you know. And there were, uh, well, we had daily phone calls with probably fifty people in the metropolitan D.C. area at the time on it, at all levels, from federal government down to the local public health departments, the emergency department guys, and. And, and all that, and it was trying to coordinate uh, our our plans and our responses and stuff like that. And uh, it was uh, it was challenging, and a lot of things were done as a result of the challenges of that. That hopefully at the local levels, they ha- it hasn't been forgotten because there's a lot of good stuff that was generated uh, uh, out of uh, Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Defense, uh, Department of Homeland Security after that was up and running, and. Uh, those those plans and, and policies and stuff, uh, even if they haven't been used, they should still be on a shelf and people are pulling them out, updating them, and using them now, we hope. Your article that we published, Protect the Force from the Novel Coronavirus, we published it last Thursday, so it's now a week later. And as we everyone knows, has been following the news, uh, this is changing quickly. There's an update every hour, almost, it seems. Uh, so bring us up to speed, bring our listeners up to speed on where this is in terms of the global pandemic, which uh, that that term, uh, the, the World Health Organization uh, came out and declared it a pandemic the night before we published your article. And then tell us a little bit about how you see this impacting the military force. Okay. Well, as you know, you, you you got it exactly right. It's a it's a very big moving target. I I had it open, but I closed it. Johns Hopkins has a dashboard that shows the current numbers, and they are actually more current than um, uh, what you see from uh, the World Health Organization or CDC because they update that uh, almost minute by minute. I think there's about 140,000 total cases worldwide in the United States. It's, it's Broaching 7,000, 6,700 somewhat, as I see, about 110 deaths in the United States. Half of those are in and around uh, that nursing home in Washington State. And then another oh, another 25% are in uh, either New York or in the New Rochelle area or California. Uh, and then a smattering of states with one, two, maybe up to seven in, in Florida, I believe. So that's the current numbers. Since the, um, as, as you recall in the article, I talked about containment and mitigation. And at the time that, I, uh, that, that we put that article together, we said that the states and the federal governments were either already transitioning to mitigation or they were thinking about it. And that's like the next day, that's what we did. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's obvious. And, and it actually, from the data from uh, China and some other places, it was pretty obvious that we were going to have to go to the, the mitigation. The term I use is whack-a-mole. What we were doing was when a new case would pop up in a community, we would be all over that case. You know, In other words, isolate and treat that case, find, try to find every single person that individual had been in contact, maybe even double rings where you contacts of contacts, 
either either voluntarily isolate or voluntarily quarantine those people uh, beyond the incubation period, which most people believe is about 14 days, to keep it from spreading. But but we also believed, although we still don't have absolute proof of it, that there were people walking around in the community that we had not identified and have not identified because although you could be infected with this, especially if you're young and healthy, you might have no symptoms, but you could still spread the disease to other people. And there were some researchers out of Cedar sinai that estimated that as of May 5th, there were anywhere between 1,000 and 10,000 asymptomatic carriers, if you would, like the old typhoid marrier, typhoid Mary, that were you know, spreading the disease around. And sure enough, um, you know, we started to wind up getting, getting cases where people had no, con- no trace to travel back to China. And so that kind of tells us that, you know, we are behind the eight ball on it. And the lack of widespread testing, which is hopefully being resolved rapidly, challenges that that uh, challenges us to identify for sure who's got it who doesn't have it the mitigating actions that the nation writ large is employing now is basically social distancing either you know stay at home or remain as bill and i are right now six feet at least from each other and then wash your hands frequently you know, sing Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive as you do it, whatever. Um, <laughs> or whatever your favorite song is. Whatever your favorite song is, whatever your favorite earworm might be. Are those sufficient? Well, there's a whole list of, uh, and, and again, uh, I'll refer back to the article, there's a whole list of various mitigation techniques that can take place. All right. Obviously, from an individual point of view, I've, it's been said a hundred times by a hundred different people, I'm going to say it again, if you have no symptoms, Wearing a mask does not, a surgical mask does not protect you from other people. The pro purpose of surgical masks, if you think about it, is so that the surgeon leaning over the, the operative field is not putting uh, microorganisms into the operating field. It's not to protect the surgeon from microorganisms coming out of it. And uh, we did some studies back, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago or so about surgical masks, and we've, we discovered what we kind of already knew, that 15 to 20% of the air you inhale when you have a surgical mask on comes around the edges of the mask. Um, and they also, the masks are not designed for extremely, extremely small particles like viruses. So they are not going to protect you. What a, what a mask, a surgical mask does is if I've got the virus and I'm coughing, I'm putting out big droplets when I cough. Well, if I've got a surgical mask on, they're going to impact the backside of the mask that's next to my face, and they're not going to spread around the room. So um, that's one thing. The social distancing thing works. It's been proven to work. It, it works best if it's instituted early and if it's kept on in place. And that, that plus the hygiene is, you know, it's a layered protective thing. Uh, but, but that plus the hygiene, staying away from people that are known to be infected, if a person is over, I'm going to say 65, has, and especially if they have underlying health problems like uh, uh, 
chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, congestive heart failure, hypertension, diabetes. Uh, they're on immunosuppressive drugs for HIV or for cancer or something like that. They are vulnerable populations, and they need to take even extra precautions because if a grandfather lives with the, the, the parents and you've got teenage sons and daughters and, and they are now out of school, but that doesn't mean they're staying at home playing Nintendo. And so if they transmit it among themselves, among the, the high school population or grade school or, or kindergarten population, if they take it back and they have it now in the house, they could infect grandpa. And grandpa's got a very high complication and morbidity and mor- mortality rate if, if they contract the disease. So it all dep- it's, it's personnel dependent, but, but uh, certainly the social distancing works. I've got an article right in front of me that was written back in 2007. It's a medical article where they took all the data from the Spanish flu epidemic, all the data that they had from 1918. They looked at social distancing practices in a number of uh, metropolitan areas in the United States to see what the difference in case rates and uh, case fatality rates were, uh, depending on those locations and, and the social distancing and other practices that they instituted, like can't, it's the same thing, canceling mass gatherings, uh, telling people to stay off of mass transit systems, et cetera. And what they found, just as an example, and this is the, the prototypic curve that you see published in the newspaper, is they compared Philadelphia to St. Louis. St. Louis, like the day after their first case, they instituted uh, uh, social distancing practices. They not only had their total cases spread out over a longer period of time, but the total number of cases and the total number of deaths as a result of that per thousand, so adjusted for the population, was significantly less than Philadelphia. Philadelphia didn't do anything till about two weeks after they had their first case. In fact, they had a big parade like 10 days after they had their first couple of cases appear. Uh, so that take-home lesson is, the two take-home lessons is you have to institute social distancing practices, whether your government tells you to or not, and you have to do it early. You know, like I didn't do a whole lot down here where I live in, in I live just outside of Hilton Head till we got the, I started turning up my uh, uh, social distancing practices once we get the first case within 100 miles of us. That's what I did personally for my family. The other thing this article showed that no one's talked a lot about, and I think your listeners should pay attention to this a lot. Denver, Colorado, actually during the 1918 pandemic, they actually started their social distancing practices early, like St. Louis did. But what happened was, and you're going to get a lag, the new number of cases now that we're doing the social distancing, it's not going to instantaneously flatten out. It's going to, because there's people out there that have it that just haven't had signs and symptoms yet to go see a doctor. So for the next week to 10 days, you can expect the numbers, in, you know, if everybody complies with the, with the social distancing requirements, which is questionable that everybody will. But if, if everybody complies with that as best they can, you could still expect to see the numbers in the United States continue to rise for at least the next week to maybe 10 days. And then if history is a lesson, that curve is going to bend and the number of new cases is going to start dropping. What happened was in Denver is about, oh, three weeks or four weeks after they instituted their first set of social distancing practices, which included school closures, 
cancellations of public gatherings and, and several other other things like businesses being restricted, uh, streetcar capacity limited, limited, and things like that. Um, once their curve started bending, they eased off on uh, some of their uh, requirements, specifically uh, uh, the, those other things like restrictions on streetcars and their uh, public gathering ban. So they eased off on that, and within a week, the numbers started climbing again, and they actually climbed higher and faster than they did the first time. I'm glad you brought up the 1918 flu and the lessons from that because it uh, we've been reading about that. In fact, uh, my uh, deputy, Bill Bray, was able to pull up uh, some information about how the Naval Academy was impacted by the 1918 Spanish flu and the number of midshipmen deaths and staff deaths and things. And uh, and we have, um, uh, in fact, it'll go out in our, went out in our newsletter last night, uh, an article about the Spanish flu and how its impact on the military back then. So, uh, you know, really good lessons from over 100 years ago that can, you know, that, that, uh, have an impact today, right? As you just said, that those social distancing lessons learned and best practices are, are still impactful and still important for us to practice today. The I, I read a Twitter thread this morning. Um, I want to say it's the uh, it's a British Institute of Health. I, I'm getting the exact name wrong, but their modeling is exactly what you, you just said, uh, Doc, in terms of people ease off as the trend goes down the social distancing restrictions you know restaurants open up again um, everybody's got cabin fever and they want to get back outside they think the the threat has passed and in fact it is not and so this model I think Harvard has a similar model that says we're going to sort of have this sine wave of you know spikes in cases and and associated deaths necking back down on on the societal norms, relaxing those back and forth. And until we have a vaccine, um, we're not out of the woods. So he predicts the shortest time frame that we won't be out of the woods is 18 months. Um, so does that mesh with, with your thinking? Well, yes and no. I mean, most coronavirus, well, all coronaviruses that we have studied thus far, and in fact, most most of the respiratory viruses, like you know, influenza type A, type B, uh, adenovirus, uh, there's a phycoviruses, there's a rhinovirus. They they tend to be seasonal. In other words, they appear in sometime in the late fall. Some of them appear more more midwinter and stuff like that. But they almost categorically die down. They don't go all the way away, but they're, they become more endemic and low-level once the warmer months come. So when you say out of the woods, there's, there, we're, in two, we're in acute phase right now. If this coronavirus does what the other coronaviruses does, as things get warmer, the inc- that can tamp the incidents down. Uh, in other words, the new cases... You know, with the social distancing and all that, the number of new cases should go down. I mean, you look at Spanish flu, and it really died out a lot of places. For the most part, by January, February, there were still some going on even after that, and it's possible to get influenza in the summertime. But it certainly it doesn't happen as often. Why? Combination of reasons. People are outside more than they're inside, so it's warmer weather. They're further apart. 
the ultraviolet lights out more often. That kills viruses. The humidity is higher. That, that not only impairs, uh, helps kill the virus, but it also affects how easily it's spread. So there's a combination of things going on there. Uh, whether this will do that or not, I don't know. So if it does, I think... Well, I mean, we could see significant reduction in new cases by uh, labor by Memorial Day, maybe even before then. But I can't say that with 100% certainty. I don't want anybody to take it to the bank. The question is, what happens next fall? Then there's three different possibilities. One is that it could come back even worse than it did this time. And Spanish flu is the prime example of that. Everybody talks about the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. But it wasn't the first wave that went around the globe that killed everybody. It was the second wave. And there's a lot of different reasons, a lot of different theories for why that happened. Tuberculosis was, was endemic throughout the world at the time. So maybe you had a combination on that. I mean, nutrition wasn't as good back then. Uh, but it also had a different profile. It hit young people as opposed to old people and all that. So it could come back even worse. And if we don't have a vaccine and we don't have effective viral antivirals, um, this is going to be, look like a cakewalk compared to what we're going to have to do next year. That, I think, is unlikely. That's the worst-case scenario. All right. The second-case scenario is what happened more or less with SARS and MERS, which are the other two novel coronaviruses that caused uproar over the last decade or so. In those cases, uh, they had the, 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 the peak. Um, the mortality rate for MERS was 30%. Uh, the mortality rate for SARS was 10%. We're hovering worldwide about 4% right now. And the actual, you know, in most places, it's, it's down around 1%, which is still uh, at least 10 times uh, higher than, than seasonal influenza. But what happened with SARS and MERS is it almost died out 100% after that first outbreak. And there's been a few trickle cases picked up here and there, but, but the numbers are nothing like the, like the first round. That's, that's another possibility. The third possibility, and this is more likely what I believe will happen and other people believe, but we really don't know, is that, yeah, it'll die down over the summertime. It will come back next year. And instead of talking about flu season from now on, we'll talk about flu and coronavirus season from now on. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of promising work being done in vaccines, in uh, uh, a number of different countries are doing a number of different antiviral studies. A lot of them are too small to tell. Something fresh out of France just in the last day or so is that they they think from a very small study that a drug, a commonly used drug, been around since 1945 to treat malaria, has a positive impact on infections. That's way too early to tell. The Chinese tried every different uh, combination of antivirals and other medications. So all that data and aggregate hopefully is going to spill out pretty soon. And, you know, we could potentially have promising antiviral treatments in our armamentarium by the summertime. If we do, we can give a production of that. And, and that'll change the whole dynamic. So in terms of a vaccine for COVID-19, I know the president had a roundtable that was aired and there was some back and forth discussion about how quickly can we do this. And being the businessman that he is, he's not overly impressed with, with process or, or a paradigm. But my understanding is that, in fact, again, I, on the same Twitter thread that I was talking about uh, before, of course, Twitter's the font of all 
ground truth knowledge. Um, <laughs> somebody, a patient has already been injected with a, a specific COVID-19 vaccine. And now there's the wait and see piece, which is 12 to 14 months. Uh, is, is that true? Normal vaccine development involves a couple of different things. You do, you got to develop it. You got to do model, you know, you got to animal test it. You uh, test it for safety, not the question about whether it works or not, but whether it causes damage. If the cure is worse than the disease and you don't want to use it. So that's, you know, those are clinical trials. And then you go to the next level, which is through a variety of different techniques, depending on what you're using and all that, you want to see if it works. You know, why produce, you know, 30 million shots? And only find out that it doesn't work. So there, there's a stepwise process that's been in place for years. You can only short circuit that for so much. I mean, the way you tell if a vaccine works, short of giving, you know, having someone, uh, I don't know whether you call the name William Jenner, but he was the one did the inoculations for, uh, for smallpox with, uh, with the vaccinia virus. Um, and he actually tried to catch smallpox himself. He also used some uh, some kids where he vaccinated them and then exposed them, which, you know, obviously would not go very far in today's society. But you can tell if antibodies have been developed as a result of your vaccine. And so you don't have to wait for the next wave of the infection to come around necessarily to say, yes, there does appear to be a perfective factor as a result of that vaccine. Now, how well it protects you'd have to actually be exposed to the disease. But short of exposing someone to, to a potentially fatal disease, you can tell if there's been an immune response. And if there has been an immune response and the virus has not mutated significantly enough different by the time it comes out again, then you could be pretty sure that it will be somewhat effective, if not 100% effective. Jerry, I got a question for you about uh, impacts to military readiness, and you were a, a Navy flight surgeon, and uh, I'm sure that this is part of uh, your calculus as, as you're following all of this. Uh, our USNI news team uh, reported on Sunday that uh, a sailor on board the USS Boxer tested positive for the coronavirus. I was listening to news uh, on my way in multiple different channels, and I heard that the number of U.S. military members who've now tested positive is up to 39, uh, which was mm-hmm. uh, a trip. There's trip- a couple more ships that have had positive hits, too. Ex- exactly. I can't remember the names of them. Exactly. So, so what kind of advice would you give for uh, ship commanding officers, for example, unit commanding officers? And then what are the kinds of things that the CNO and the Commandant of the Marine Corps and the Commandant of the Coast Guard need to be thinking about to protect the entire force. Let's say you're a flight surgeon again for CAG-X. What would you advise mm-hmm. CAG to do immediately? Well, are you talking about if I had a positive on the ship? Yep. Oh, that, that's the easier part. All right. The easier part, if I had a positive on the ship, number one, they would be, they would be quarantined to a room immediately. Um, I would see you know, where did they get it? I mean, if, if the ship's been out at sea for two or three weeks, that's a different picture than if you just had a port call. And that port call issue goes to the protective measures. I would attempt to do essentially what, what they do when they get a hit around here in the United States. I would do as much contact tracing as I could to the, attempt, to the extent that it could do it without jeopardizing the overall mission. I would want to quarantine so I'd isolate the guy that was positive, but I would quarantine 
anybody that they like probably as many people that he was in contact in his work center the the problem is it's probably going to go throughout the ship anyway because if you were in aviation on a ship then you know what the dirty shirt mess all is like and so there's probably a hundred people at least that have been exposed and at some point in time a lot of them are going to go positive i would do my best to contain it but realize that number one i probably can't i might be able to slow it down but i probably can't totally contain it because by the time that one guy's positive, there's a bunch of other people sick that he might not even know he bumped into. Um, the night, the, if there's a good thing about it is, I don't think there's been a single death, uh, 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 maybe maybe one or two, uh, on people below 30. And our, as I think I said in the article, the vast majority of people in the military, I mean, the, the CO is probably the biggest at risk because he's probably one of the oldest guys or gals. Um but but the, the 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 force is healthier than the population general. You, you don't you, you're not on active duty if you have congestive heart failure or, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or insulin dependent diabetes and things like that. So you're probably you're either not even going to know you're sick, or your symptoms are going to be mild and and easily recoverable. But you're going to carry the virus around for thirty days, um, and so. Do the best to to uh, clean the work center. Try try to get a whole new uh, group in there if possible. But realize that you're probably fighting a losing battle, and virtually everybody on the ship is going to be exposed at one point in time over the next three months if they all stay on the ship. So there was a Sunday Times article this Sunday about uh, two doctors in China, both 29, one recovered and one died. Um, so that's mm-hmm. that's the only data I have that somebody under the age of 30. Uh, did die, and obviously the circumstances. She was a caregiver in a very acute, uh, you know, part of the pandemic. Um, so probably not analogous to the scenario we're talking about here, which is a shipboard one. So let, let's say this, this, this. Let's just call it. It's a lieutenant aviator who you've isolated. Yep. You, you've, you've also in some way uh, tried to stymie it by dealing with whoever his roommates are. Let's say he lives in a four man. Um, Imagine this guy gets worse. Do you do you have respirators on the carrier? Does your average surface combatant have the means, or do you start? Is this where you start to cut them off to Wiesbaden and, and Ramstein and bigger places? Well, you certainly have you certainly have have uh, some ventilator, ventilators on board because they uh, uh, you have surgical capability. It's not exercised too often on board ships, um, but you do have some surgical capability. So you do have. Uh, have that capability. Um, I, if I would want to get them off, again, this is an assessment. This is more from my emergency medicine background than from my flight surgeon. I mean, there, he would get a very good uh, history and physical. I don't know if current carriers have CAT scans. I would imagine they do not. Um, the two te- and and to be honest with you, I don't know that they currently now have the ability to actually test for coronavirus. What would a CAT scan show you? Congestion in the lungs? Is that why you well, want a CAT no, scan? Well, no. There's there's been some studies done from the Chinese. They use CAT scans like we used X-rays. I mean, they 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 you know I mean a, a CAT scan costs you you know five hundred to fifteen hundred dollars, maybe even more in the states. But they they were CAT scanning. A lot, almost all the patients that had tested positive. And what they found was that the CAT scan was more sensitive in picking up the damage in the lungs than, than the x-rays were. 
and in some cases more accurate than the uh, PCR testing, the nasal swab testing. Um, uh, so um, not having the ability to do PCR, which, by the way, is not 100% foolproof, uh, or doing a CAT scan, I would have to rely totally on clinical judgment. And if the person had no underlying comorbidities or risk factors, which he probably would not, um, probably for the first day or so, I would watch him. If he progressed and got worse, I'd want to bingo him to shore. Uh, and, of course, that opens up a whole issue of how do you keep the aircraft clean or how do you clean it after the fact and all that kind of stuff. But as I said, for the vast majority of these people, their symptoms are going to be probably no worse than the common cold or maybe a mild case of influenza. Navy ships, uh, in terms of the interactions of the people on board, are not too unlike those uh, of uh, cruise ships, which we've seen several different cruise ships, including the Diamond Princess quarantine in mm-hmm. Japan, right? So, uh, once the difference as, is that the population demographics are, are extremely different. That's a, that's, a military vessel. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. But your your point that it, it is likely to go throughout the ship. If, it, if one person on board the ship's got it, there's a real good chance if uh, if you can't get that person off the ship quickly, it's likely going to quickly go through the ship. And that- even if you get them off quickly, it's likely to go through the ship again. Uh, there was a, a chart the, the, that I saw from a uh, Journal of American Medical Association put it together that that showed what happened. You know, the epicenter for this whole thing was in Wuhan, China, which is in a province, think of a state of Hubei. And this chart plotted the number of diagnosed cases. In other words, they had had the the testing that says this person does have this virus. And they showed that and they showed where key actions took place. And one of the key actions was when uh, the the government locked down Wuhan and then Hubei. All right. The cases continued to go up after that point because of diagnosed cases because there are already about 25 times as many asymptomatic cases or yet to become symptomatic cases walking around already when they instituted their, their, their social distancing uh, lockdown mitigation practices. So put that on a ship, you got one case on the ship, you could have anywhere from five to 25 people that are infected that just don't know it yet. At the time you catch the first guy, if you have a way to catch the first guy by testing or you ratchet up and say they probably have it based upon clinical findings and history, so I'm going to presume they do even if they and wait till I can find out for sure. So if you have one case on a ship that you know or have high probability that you've got five more at least, they're already there. And each one of them is now walking around spreading it to five more, at least. So we, we talk about social distancing, and certainly that's a luxury that all of us here on you know, Feet Dry can, can execute. But if I'm listening to this podcast and I'm, I'm aboard ship um, and I live in 96-man birthing, I don't have the luxury of social distancing. So let's say somebody in my immediate surroundings is coughing. You know, we don't know if they have coronavirus or not, and they are, besides that, maybe asymptomatic. But what prevention measures would you recommend to folks in a shipboard environment? 
who cannot well, all, a maintain a six-foot bubble all at right. all times. First of all, it's a personal responsibility issue. If you cough, you cover up your cough. And you don't do it with your hand. You cover up your sleeve or you carry around a Kleenex and put it over your mouth or a tissue and then throw that, tish, throw that tissue away. All right. And if you're coughing, then you get to sick bay. And before you go into sick bay, you let them know that you're coming and you're coughing so they can put on their N95 respirators and, and whatever procedures they're having set up so you don't infect all your, your uh, medical crew. For other people, like I said, I mean, if you're, you know, it's a, it's a graded response. If you're 20 feet away, you've got, you've got much less chance of getting a virus than if you're 15 feet away. If you're 15 feet away, you've got much less chance of getting a virus than if you're 6 feet away, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, like mess hours. Maybe you extend your mess hours so there's not so many people in the, in the chow hall at the same time. You look, at it, you look at every one of your work centers and see if there's a way you could maybe, maybe reduce some of the staffing. If the weather's nice, you know, people can, and you're not doing flight ops, maybe you can go topside. You could, you could spread out. You might not be able to spread out as far. But you can do things to spread out the distance between yourselves. If, you, if, if someone you can't touch with your fingertips, then, then you are more protected than if you're shoulder to shoulder with them. For our listeners, we've been talking to Dr. Jerry Mothershead. He and uh, Dr. Dembeck and Dr. Igwa Wu are the co-authors of an article on proceedings called Protect the Force from the Novel Coronavirus. Uh, Jerry, we hope that you and your co-authors will update this as, as you see fit. If uh, you're following this very closely, I know you're part of uh, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency's Reach Back team. Uh, if there's things that you think our readers could benefit from in the coming weeks or months, um, please provide us an update and we'll update the article and we'll, we'll republish it and get it out. Uh, also appreciate um, uh, your willingness to use the Naval Institute and use proceedings as a chance to, or as an opportunity to get this message out to people who need to know how to protect themselves and how to protect the force. So thanks again for writing and, and for being on the show. Well, thank you very much. I'd like to add one thing, if I could. Absolutely. Um, just so people don't get alarmed. The president called for a two-week uh, social distancing, uh, you know, all, all those things that he did, you know, a couple of days ago and said, we're going to do it till the end of the month. He probably said it, but it wasn't stressed. And, and I think people need to understand that that uh, Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Health, uh, you know, all the players up there, Dr. Fauci, everybody else, is going to be reassessing the situation before that two weeks is up. And I might be wrong. I've been wrong before, but I feel there's a better than 50% chance that they will extend those practices at least another two weeks prior to uh, the end of the month. People should not be alarmed that something's gone bad if they do. It's like anything in, in medicine. You take an action, see what the effect of that action is, and then decide whether you continue with that action, you you add another thing or you stop everything altogether. Well, the American public isn't really known for its patience, but these are the times when we lean on the expertise of experts like you. Thank you. And as Bill said, uh, the lines are open here. And uh, if we need an update, we'll get you back on the podcast as our immediate way to get the word out and other digital mechanisms in the Naval Institute's quiver. So thank you, sir, very much for well, thank you. joining us today. We'll keep you updated on this and other things happening in the sea services. Until then, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week.